Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. Good morning, God's people. What a blessing it is to be gathered with the people of God. It never gets old to gather and sing God's praises together as his people. And uh, one of the things that struck me as we were singing this morning are these words, all I have is Christ. You know, that we try to talk about this somewhat frequently uh, because it's wise to do so, and that is that we're all going to die, right? It's a reality of life. Each and every one of us is going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that hour of death, as we are sinking into death, there is only one thing that will matter. Do we have Christ? And so I pray this morning that as you sing those words, that those are meaningful to you, those are deeply embedded in every fiber of your heart, that all you have is Christ. And if you don't have Christ, today, call out to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to the Lord and ask him. Ask him to be merciful to you as that tax collector was there beating his chest saying, I am a sinner. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. Call out to God in that way. God is faithful. He is gracious. He is quick to forgive. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, forgiving sin. Call out to him today and ask him through Christ Jesus to take away your sin and put it there at the cross. Today we continue our series in Genesis. We are still there, yes. So if you would go with me to Genesis 37, that's where we are today. Genesis 37. Over the last few months, Liz Melville, who has uh, been doing our newsletter, our church newsletter, she has been interviewing the church officers and their wives. And so she has in each newsletter uh, a series of questions for uh, church officers and and just kind of go through so you can get to know the leadership here at Four Corners. And back in December, Liz came to me and asked if I would be willing to do that with Jennifer. And so we answered a series of questions. And one of the questions on her list was, what is your favorite portion of scripture? Well, of course, that's a very difficult question, and I didn't give one. There are many. It's a very difficult question, I think, for people to ask. What is the passage that you love more than any other? It's so hard. Because immediately someone asks us that question, and a bunch of passages come into our minds. But one of the things I said there is that my favorite story in the Bible, and this has been the case since I was a child, is Joseph in Egypt. And that's what we start looking at today. From Genesis 37 all the way up to the end of the book, we essentially have this self-contained story. Now, it's important to, to notice this, that one could come and preach a series on Joseph and pick up in chapter 37. And many people have done that. That would be a viable way to proceed and kind of set it up and give context. But, but I think it is exciting to come to a very well-known passage like the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis, and to come to it situated very much in the storyline of Genesis as a whole. So we've been walking slowly through Genesis, and now we get to come very much seated in its context. We get to come to this story of Joseph in 
Egypt. It is a story in which God's providence is put on display. There probably is not a passage in all of the Bible that displays God's providence more than this story. I recently heard that uh, John Piper, some of you have heard of him, is, is, is writing a book on God's providence. And I guess that's supposed to come out at some point in the next year or so. And I wouldn't be surprised if he spends a, a ton of time in this passage at the end of Genesis. It puts God's providence clearly on display. But one of the things that has been with me ever since I was a kid is, yes, God's providence in this story. But one of the things that's so striking to me about the Joseph story, is God's supremacy. Not just his providence, but his supremacy over the nations. I've always been fascinated with the history of ancient Egypt. Here's this this grand uh, people who built the pyramids. We still go today and we see these pyramids and, and we see these amazing ruins of the ancient Egyptians, this well-known ancient people. And to think that God took this teenage Hebrew boy who himself was part of a, a family that had just been moving through the land and brought him to Egypt and raised him up to be the chief man in Egypt under the Pharaoh is incredible. That's the God who rules all. He's not just God over the lives of his people. He's God over every speck of everything everywhere. He's God. He is Lord of the nations. And he shows us that in the story of Joseph, just as he does in the story of Daniel. I want to give you a quote here from Kent Hughes in the opening of his commentary on this passage, on this chapter. He says, ultimately... And above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the everyday events of life. There are no miracles here. God does not suspend his natural laws to make things happen. The story is about the hidden but sure way of God. God's hidden hand. Arranges everything without show or explanation or violating the nature of things. God is involved in all events and directs all things to their appointed end. That's what we find in this story of Joseph. And I just want to submit this to you. This is God all the time. The God of the story of Joseph is very much the God of your story today. The God who sovereignly oversaw all the events of Joseph's life is the God who is sovereignly overseeing all the events and circumstances of your life, my life, today. This is God all the time. This is God in your life. We get a sense for this in Matthew 10. Verses 29 to 30, where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I've always loved this this verse. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Somewhere right now in a field that no one can see, there is a sparrow falling to the ground. And God sovereignly has overseen all of that. He's intimately involved as he sustains the world in the falling of a bird from the sky to the earth. Everywhere for all time. 
That's the kind of God we are talking about. But then he applies it. Jesus brings it to bear on an individual's life. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows every single detail of your life. And he knows how many hairs there are on your head. Not one of them falls out or turns white apart from his sovereignty. This is the kind of God we have gathered together this morning to worship, to call upon, to praise. And of course, the well-known passage, Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That God can take any negative circumstance in your life, any tragedy, anything at all, and he turns all of it for your good if you belong to him. You know, it is a bit of a cliche. We have our cliches as Christians, our platitudes that we say out there. And one of those is, well, God is in control. We say that, we say that, we say that. And it is a bit of a platitude and a cliche. And sometimes we say it because we can't think of anything else to say. But here's the thing. It is absolutely true. And it is absolutely essential for living the Christian life. God is in control. We have seen much of God's providence already in the lives of the patriarchs. Remember the patriarchs, the fathers of the, of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've seen much of God's providence already in their lives. We've seen God move his people, move them geographically around to different places. We've seen him protect his people. We've seen him work in the hearts of others just as, as Daniel gained favor in the eyes of those there in Babylon, and he was exalted. And the same was true of Joseph in Egypt. Just as God is working in the hearts of people to, to be disposed well to his people, we see that, we have seen that here in Genesis. We've seen him work in hearts and relationships, but probably the clearest example of God's providence that we have come across so far would be how God orchestrated the marriage of Rebecca and Isaac. And we've talked a little bit about that, and we've re- referred to that a lot, is that you know, Abraham sent his servant to, back to his uh, relatives, and he sent him there to find a wife for his son Isaac. And I won't go into all of the details, but we saw all the ways that God was guiding the process. He got there, he prayed before he was even finished praying. God sent the woman who would marry Isaac, and she did exactly what he had prayed to God she would do. And then all the circumstances began to pile up very much in favor of Isaac's, Isaac finding a wife. So we saw there, I think, a little taster of what we're going to see in the story of Joseph. And where we have providence, we have faithfulness. We need to remember that. Providence is not just God showing that he's in control. That is certainly one of the things we should take from that, that God is supreme. He's in control. Nothing can happen apart from his will. But, but all of that supremacy, all of that control and sovereignty is funneled down into the good of his people. So with providence, we have faithfulness. The story of Genesis is the story of God's faithfulness to his chosen people. Up to this point, we have seen that God relates to his people. And hear this, this is so important. God relates to his people on the basis of promise. Massive word 
in Christian theology. Massive word in the scope of scripture. Promise. That is how God relates to his people. On the basis of promise. God makes promises which constitute the basis for covenants. And so what is a covenant at the heart of a covenant is divine promises. And within those covenants, God's people respond to his promises in trust and obedience. If we could sum up Genesis, I think that's what we would, what we would say. That God comes and makes promises to his people. This forms the basis of a covenant. And then within that covenant framework, his people trust him and obey him. That's what it looks like to be in covenant with God. Are you in covenant with God? You know, every person who is going to heaven, to the new heaven, new earth, every person who's going to be with God and not in hell must be a person who is in covenant with God. Are you in a covenant relationship with God through the blood of Christ? Remember when Jesus did the Last Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're either in covenant with God through the blood of Christ or we're estranged from God, hostile to God, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. And I think what we have here with God's promises and covenant and trust and obedience, we have the Christian life in a nutshell. And what I mean by that is this. As Christians, we are promise-believing and promise-doing people. That means that Christianity is not just a list of rules. It's not a moral code. It's not a political agenda. It's none of those things. The, the Christian message is a message of promises from God in and through Christ. That's what Christianity is. And as Christians, we are people who respond to those promises in trust and obedience. We live out our trust in the promises every day. And today, as we move into the Joseph narrative, we are beginning to see how God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will extend out to the nation as a whole. We are leaning into the nation. That's what I want you to see when we come to the end of, of Genesis. In this last portion of the story, Genesis 37 to 50, we've moved away from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're leaning into the nation. We're leaning towards the Exodus. We're leaning towards Moses and the people in slavery in Egypt crying out to God and God bringing out over a million people from Egypt bringing them to the promised land. Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, has 12 sons. And the descendants of those 12 sons will become the nation of Israel, or the Israelites. So if you're wondering kind of how the Bible's all put together, maybe you're new to this whole Bible thing, Christian thing, and you're trying to figure out how it all works. Well, in the Old Testament, we have a story of a people. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Israel, the descendants of Israel, the Israelites. That's what the Old Testament narrative focuses on. And if we were to sum up Genesis 37 to 50, it would be this. Through his grand providence in Joseph's life, God preserves the sons of Jacob and thus the nation of Israel. But I want you to see this. It's not just 
that God, through his grand providence in Joseph's life, preserves Joseph and his brothers and his father and so forth. It's not just that God, in doing that, preserves the nation of Israel, but it is through that he is preserving the line that leads to Christ. And thus, in preserving the people of God through Joseph, God is preserving you. Everyone here this morning who is a believer in Christ, who's been united to Christ, that's the core of salvation, united to Christ. Every person who has been united to Christ has been united to the offspring of Abraham. And through that, we've become Abraham's offspring by faith. We are reading our story. This preservation through God's providence in Joseph's life 4,000 years ago is the preservation of those of us who sit in this middle school cafeteria today for the glory of God into the ages upon ages. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 37, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help to understand his word. um, That the Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. That the Holy Spirit would help us to focus this morning on what 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 is here. Let's pray. (coughs) Our sovereign king, you are the Lord 
over heaven and earth. God, who is like you? What idol can satisfy the hearts of men? None of them, Lord. But you, you have promised through Christ to give eternal joy to your people. Satisfaction in you alone, the infinite, eternal source of joy. The treasure, the only treasure. Father, we come before you this morning and we humbly ask you, O God, to be merciful to us in our sinfulness. We remember the approach of Israel at Mount Sinai and how they were not to even get close to the mountain. They weren't, were not to touch it. And how when they heard in the thunder you speaking to Moses, they were so afraid they receded from the mountain. Lord, we are reminded of the people of God in the Old Testament who came through one man, a high priest, who very carefully and tediously would offer the blood on the mercy seat for the people. Your holiness, God, has not changed. You are the Lord. You are seated in splendor and majesty and glory. And the whole earth quakes in your presence. You are the creator of angels that far surpass our imagination. And you govern every aspect of our lives. You are God. We praise you this morning, Father. We praise you that through Christ we come boldly before you and call you Abba, you the holy God, the sinless, perfect, spotless God. Allow us sinners to come into your presence with our duplicitous hearts, with our impure motives, with our idolatrous longings, our hatred of our neighbor, our slanderous, deceitful speech, our murderous intentions, our lust of the eyes, you allow us through Christ to come and to call you Father. Lord, you are to be praised forever. And we pray that this morning, as we worship you here, that you will be glorified and that you will speak into our lives by means of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon This morning is hatred in the household. We have hatred in the household of Jacob. Repeated idea throughout this section of verses. Hatred, hatred, hatred. So two things to consider here as we think about this hatred or the source of this hatred. We have this hatred in the household and it really comes from two things. Two big things. And here's what they are. Number one, partiality from the dad superiority in the dreams. And you'll see this in your bulletin there if you would like to kind of have these in front of you. And if you want to take notes there at the end of the bulletin, you can as well. Partiality from the dad and superiority in the dream. So let's look first at the partiality from the dad. Look with me in verses one to four. I want to highlight these verses. It's a small enough text here. So I want to reread these and really focus on what we have. One to four, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy 
with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Here, we are introduced to Joseph as a biblical character. We don't really get him solidly formed for us as a biblical character until this point. So far, we've read only of his birth and his presence with his mother as a child. He's just mentioned his being with his mother as a child, and, and we had his birth narrative. And the circumstances surrounding his birth are very significant for this story. So I want to take a little time to, to go back and look at the circumstances surrounding the birth of Joseph, because it's very important for understanding what we have here. So back to chapter 29. If you'll go with me in your Bible, or you can just think back to what we were, where, what we were looking at there. Back to chapter 29, we had two sister wives, two wives for Jacob. You remember what happened? He went to stay with his uncle. His uncle deceived him, promised him if he worked for seven years, he would get Rachel. He, he adored Rachel from the moment he first saw her. He, had, he wanted her as his wife. He worked for seven years to have Rachel as his bride, and they seemed to him as a day. I mean, it didn't even matter. He was just working to get this wife. And then at the end of that time, Laban deceives him, and late at night, I don't know how this happened, but somehow, some way, Laban takes Rachel's sister, Leah, and puts her there with Jacob. And the text says in the morning, behold, Leah. So he wakes up, rolls over. It's Leah, not Rachel. He has consummated his marriage to the wrong sister, Leah, instead of Rachel. If that blows your mind and confuses you, you can go back and read that. It should blow your mind. It's a strange story. But we have these two these two sisters. Well, what happens is Jacob agrees and with, Laban, with Laban that he'll work for seven more years and then he'll have Rachel as his wife as well. And so he ends up with these two wives and they're sisters. Terrible idea, both because it's polygamy, which obviously we know from Genesis 2 that that's not God's intention, but these are two sisters, his wives. Well, we have polygamy through Laban's deception And Jacob's passion, he has to have Rachel. He could have just given up and taken Leah and moved on. But he had to have Rachel. So he ends up with two wives. And in verse 30, we get this. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Well, of course, that was the one he worked for for seven years. And Leah was kind of sprung on him. But in the nature of things, that's what we have. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah. And then in verse 31, it says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So we see the Lord working compassionately and mercifully towards Leah. Leah is is the hated wife. She doesn't even matter to Jacob. Jacob only has eyes for Rachel. So what the Lord does sovereignly, once again, is he closes Rachel's womb and he opens Leah's womb. And we read of these four sons immediately that Leah has. Well, in chapter 30, 
the craziness ensues. There are many crazy stories that we have read in Genesis. It's just bald, it's raw, it's right there in front of you. And we could go back and look at some of those stories and we could see some of the things that we've encountered, some of the human drama. One of the things that declares the authenticity of the Bible, I've said this before, is that uh, the Bible really just puts it out there for you. The Holy Spirit, through the biblical author, just puts it out there for you as it really was. So Peter, the great disciple, is the one who denies Jesus. Paul is a murderer, and he becomes the one who writes most of the New Testament. Moses, Noah, David. We could go on and on. But here we just see just the reality uh, pointing us to God's grace. But the, the craziness ensues as we enter into chapter 30. We have a childbearing competition. It really is quite terrible. You have Leah and Rachel in this competition to bear children for Jacob. And this entire thing is fueled by two idolatrous desires. Leah has an insatiable desire to be loved by Jacob. And so if she can just give him enough kids, he'll love her. And we know that Rachel has an insatiable desire to beat her sister. And so she wants to outdo her sister. And as this competition unfolds, we have another strange element thrown into the mix. As if it wasn't already strange enough, we have Leah and Rachel. And then in the middle of this competition, we have the maidservants of Leah and Rachel who are dragged into it. So remember, Leah and Rachel get a maidservant to kind of help them and care for them. These are servants of them. And what happens is Rachel grabs Bilhah, her servant, and says, here, you're going to mate with Jacob on my behalf as a surrogate, and I'm going to have children through you because I can't have children. Well, then Leah, even though she can have children, she goes through a period of barrenness after having all these children. She decides, well, I'm going to do the same thing. And so she takes Zilpah and gives her to Jacob. So now Jacob has four wives. So that's what we encountered back in chapter 30. And after 10 sons are born to Jacob, 10 sons are born, finally Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, conceives a son. Finally, after all those years and all those children and all those wives, finally, Joseph is born. Aside from his birth, there is one other mention of Joseph that we need to take note of. So I want you to kind of file that away right now as we think about what's going on here in chapter 37. That's a key part of the context. We have to put that up there on the front burner. And the second thing that we need to see is this other mention of Joseph in chapter 33. So you can look there quickly if you'd like. Chapter 33. Jacob finds himself and his family in danger. You remember this? Maybe you don't. Maybe you, you weren't attending at this point. But there in chapter 33, Joseph, uh, Jacob is approaching his estranged brother Esau. 20 years before, Esau wanted to kill him, and that's why he left and went to his relatives. Well, now the Lord has blessed him with all, all, of, these, uh, uh, off, all of this offspring and wealth, and so he's coming back, and he knows he's going to have to meet Esau. He's afraid. He prays to the Lord, and there's all of the, the things that the Lord does to comfort him, uh, the, the wrestling incident. You can go back and look at that. But here comes Jacob, approaching Esau. And in verse 2, we read how he arranges his family. So important. So important. And he put the servants with their children in front. What does that mean? Bilhah, Zilpah, 
and those kids in the very front. So if Esau does have hostile intentions, if Esau and the 400 armed men who are with him decide they want to massacre Jacob's family, who's going to die first? Who's got the least chance of escaping? Bilhah, Zilpah, and their kids. And then after that, it says, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. If anybody's going to get away, Jacob wants it to be Rachel, his beloved wife, and her, at the time, one son, Joseph. So already, we have seen that Rachel was Jacob's beloved wife. And Rachel, together with her son, is the most important unit within the family in Jacob's mind. So we don't come to chapter 37. This is, this is why I went through all of that with you. Is we don't come to chapter 37 without all of that history in place. In the dynamics of this family. As we come here to these opening verses. So in light of this background, we shouldn't be surprised at all. When we come to chapter 37 and read in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And I think packed into that idea of old age is he's the son of Rachel. He's the son Rachel longed for. He's the son Joseph that Jacob longed for for so long. Now, all the sons are grown up. With Joseph being an older teenager... He's 17 years old. He is the youngest of his brothers, except for Benjamin, who's the baby of the family, whom Rachel died giving birth to. You'll remember when they came into the land of Canaan that Benjamin was born, the last son of Jacob. And he's just a, he's small at that time. The, the baby of the family and Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And Joseph is here depicted as the prized son of his father, Jacob. Joseph keeps him informed of what the other brothers are doing, letting him know when they step out of line. And in one instance, which we have here, he brings a bad report of what the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah are up to. So who knows what's going on there? It's a little bit unclear, and this has led to lots of arguments among commentators as to whether or not the report he brings is untrue, whether or not he's being a kind of tattletale. I mean, that might be, in our own day, the image that we would get. Is we've got these, these four brothers out there, and we've got Joseph who brings a bad report to dad. Dad, let me tell you what they did. So we see that in our families with our own kids. Is that what we have here? Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. These are the four sons that are in view. And Jacob, Joseph brings a bad report to their father. And Joseph is given a symbol of his special status, a robe of many colors, or this could be translated a robe of long sleeves. It's a little unclear. So, you know, the image that it's, that it's filled, it's a rainbow cloak. That's not entirely clear from what we have in the Hebrew. That comes from early versions of this, particular, particularly Greek and Latin versions. But what we are to understand here is that there is some sort of special cloak. It either runs all the way down to his wrists and ankles or it's some kind of ornamented multicolored cloak or robe. And that is what Jacob gives his son. You might remember that Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, had dishonored his father by sleeping with Bilhah. Yes, it continues to unfold. Yes, that's what happened. Reuben, the oldest son of Leah... 
actually slept with Bilhah, who is the maidservant of Rachel. So yes, that happened. And when that happened, you remember that the dishonoring of the father was something that later in Genesis 49 is referred to. And so here it seems that the status of the oldest has moved from Reuben to Joseph. Reuben is the oldest son of Leah. Joseph is the oldest son of Rachel. So it's almost as though Reuben, because of dishonoring his father, has been displaced as the oldest son of Leah and the oldest son of all of them. And the one to replace him is not the next oldest son, but the oldest son of Rachel. So that seems to be... What is going on here? So here's Joseph. He's an informant, a spy for his dad. He's an informant to his father, clothed in this robe that sets him apart from his brothers, clothed with the favoritism of his father. So how do the brothers respond? Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The reason that I have entitled this sermon Hatred in the Household is because this is the most repeated idea in the narrative. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. This is all over the place here. They hate Joseph. This vehement hatred for Joseph is so intense that these brothers couldn't even speak kindly or peacefully to him. Oh, oh, excuse me, Joseph. Not even that. There's no courtesy extended whatsoever to Joseph by these brothers. Every word out of their mouths was venom. Similar to what we read in Romans 3, 13 to 14, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Speaking of the human race in general, this is the kind of language that describes the way that these brothers related to Joseph. They hated him and could not even speak kindly or peacefully to him. So before we move on, I want to highlight two things here by way of application for us. As we think about what we have in these first four verses, I want to highlight two ideas for you. First, favoritism. This is something that we have seen repeatedly. Remember, we came to it early on with Isaac. Isaac had his favorite son, Esau, and Rebekah had her favorite son, Jacob. And then we saw with Jacob, Jacob had his favorite wife, Rachel. So over and over and over again, we have seen the destructive power of favoritism in this Family, And I think there's application there for us, as I've said before, is that it reminds us that when we favor certain children over others, we are setting up our home for chaos and destruction. We're setting up wounded hearts. So we've seen this before. We also see here that it's generational, right? I mean, like father, like son, we we learn things from our parents. I'm sure that if we went around this room this morning... That you could say, everyone could say things that they know that they've picked up from their parents. Maybe there are some things you've picked up from your parents that you're like, that is great. I'm so glad I picked that up. And maybe there are things that you picked up from your parents where you're thinking, I kind of need to work on that. Either way, we know that sorts of characteristics that we have. And obviously genetics is a part of this as well, but learned behaviors, learned characteristics. And what we see here is just a perpetuation of what Jacob himself would have been wounded by. You imagine what it would have been like 
in his household to know that dad really loves Esau and Jacob's just kind of in the tents. What that would have done to Jacob's heart that his own father loved his brother more than him, well, that's exactly what he's doing to his own kids, learned behavior. So that's the first idea I think we need to hone in on. The second idea is envy. What we have here with these brothers, pure and simple, is envy. Remember Jesus before Pilate? What did Pilate say, or what does the text say in Matthew that Pilate recognized in the hearts of the religious leaders who wanted to have Jesus crucified. Remember, the religious leaders stirred up the crowd against Jesus to say, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Pilate, a discerning leader, a savvy politician, he knew what was going on. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. Pure and simple. That's why they wanted Jesus to die. They didn't care about God's law. They saw in Christ the glory of God and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit by calling it evil, demonic. They just didn't like Jesus because Jesus stole the glory from them. Similar thing here with Joseph, who I believe becomes a type of Christ in the narrative of Scripture. But we have here with Joseph, this envy of the brothers. I just want you to hear a few passages about envy because this is a great time to think about this theme. Romans 1.29, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Do you know that envy ushers in murder? Envy and murder are very closely related to one another in these lists of sins in the Bible. We see in Galatians 5, 9 to 21, the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives this list, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. When you find envy in your heart, you're experiencing your fallenness. You are seeing in even the smallest envy, your neighbor's flower beds. The smallest bit of envy, the leather seats in their car, whatever it might be, no matter how tiny or silly or insignificant, it is an expression of your inadamness, your fallenness, the fact that you are in Adam and that you are in the flesh insofar as you are in Adam. As believers, we're told not to walk according to the flesh, but to walk according to the spirit. Let me give you another text, James 3.16. Listen to this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You hear that? You, there, there may be all kinds of vileness in your life right now and all kinds of disorder. And you might be able this very day to trace all of it to envy. Think about that. All of it. The destructive power of envy in the life of a person. Disorder and every vile practice. Now listen to this. This text is startling. Last one, Ephesians 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That is convicting. All toil and all skill 
What does this say to us about how we teach our kids to strive? To strive for A's. Strive to go to Harvard. Strive to get that great job. Strive in your envy, my son. Strive in your envy, my daughter. Is that what we want for our kids? Heart eat up with envy, with vileness in every disorder. That's the way of the world. That's the way the world raises their children, filling their little hearts with envy all along. We do our work as unto the Lord. Whether we eat or whether we drink, we do all for the glory of God, not so that we can be better than our neighbor. Only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, dwelling in the heart of a person can change that trajectory. Only Christ can do that. Otherwise, envy. But as we'll see, all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. So go with me now to verse 5. Now I want to look at our second point, superiority in the dreams, as we finish up this morning. Superiority in the dreams, verses 5 to 11. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. I told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, as if the robe wasn't enough, To arouse his brother's hatred, here Jacob starts having dreams. He starts having dreams with his multicolored or long inheritance cloak, with his father's affection doting over him. He adds to all of that these dreams, and not just dreams, but dreams about his future superiority over his brothers. This This is kind of funny. Imagine him in his excitement, telling his brothers all about it. Of course, he is quite happy to report those dreams to his brothers. He doesn't hold those things back at all. I wonder if I tell them this, they might hate me more. No, he just, he just avalanche. Pours on these dreams, letting his brother know that, hey, I'm going to be better than you guys one day. The meaning of the two dreams is one and the same. And as we'll see later with Pharaoh's dreams about the cows and ears of grain, they mean the same, the two dreams mean the same thing. So in, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Joseph's going to be in Egypt and he's going to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And in 4126, he says this to Pharaoh, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. So two dreams, but they have the same Meaning, And not only do the dreams convey the same point, but the fact that there are two of them is also significant because Joseph will also say in 41.32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream 
means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly or surely bring it about. So it will happen. It is fixed. It it cannot be undone. God will do this thing. And so two dreams make that clear. So what does he see in these dreams? Dream one, his brother's sheaves or bundles of grain are gathered around and bowing down to his sheaf. Dream two, the sun, moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to him. One dream is agricultural. The other is astronomical. Both end in the superiority of Joseph in his family. And you might ask the question, well, hold on a second. His mother, uh, Rachel, has already died. Why is she present in the dream? Because the sun represents the father and the moon represents the mother. And then the 11 stars represent the brothers. That's not really a a tricky one. I mean, it just simply implies that it's the whole family. It's a way of conveying the fullness of it, that the family as a whole will bow down to Joseph. And what we see here is that the meaning of these dreams is immediately clear to Joseph's brothers and his father. They don't need to consult anyone about the meaning of these dreams. They are told in such a clear way, they're self evident as to what they mean, and they bring immediate hatred. After the first one, the brothers say in verse 8, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? They know what it means. I'm going to rule over you, my brothers. And after the second dream, his father, verse 10, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So there's, there's no question as to what the dream means. Jacob will be, Joseph will be superior to them. And although Jacob and his sons asked Joseph the same question, the way they process these dreams is very different. Jacob's response, verse 11, his father kept the saying in mind. Why do you think Jacob kept this saying in mind? Well, maybe it's because Jacob remembers being told as a boy by his mother that she had had an oracle from the Lord that told her that she had two sons in her womb. They're they're wrestling it out in there in the womb. It's going crazy in her her womb. And she goes to the Lord to ask what's going on. And the Lord tells her there are two, two nations. They're twins and there are two nations in your womb. And the older will serve the younger. In other words, the, the younger brother is going to be superior to the older. Jacob will be superior to Esau. Jacob would have been told that. This oracle from the Lord. And then as Jacob grew up, we know as he went out to the east, God would appear to him in a dream. God would show him this ladder and angels descending and ascending upon the ladder and God standing at the top of the ladder and communicating to Jacob, I am with you. So here his son's telling him, Dad, I've had some dreams. And this is what they say. Of course, they're so outlandish And so bold and so presumptuous that his dad is like, whoa, 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 son. You're 17 years old. And you're thinking that you're going to reign over all of us? We're going to bow down to you somehow? What in the world are you talking about? But he keeps it in mind knowing what the Lord has done in his own life. The brother's response, very different. Very different. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers... 
They hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. Of course, we know where this is headed, right? Jacob's going to send Joseph out to his brothers. They're going to see him coming. They're going to say, let's kill him. Let's kill that dreamer. They're going to end up putting him in a pit, and then they're going to sell him as a slave. And that's how he's going to end up in Egypt. So as we close this morning, what are we to make of these verses, of these dreams of superiority? And I just want to give you one major idea, the sovereignty of God. And I want to focus on that in two ways. First, God's sovereign choice. When we think about the sovereignty of God, there is simply no way around the fact that God chooses. God chooses. The doctrine of election that we have, that God chooses those whom he will save, is not something imported onto the Bible by anyone at any time in, in history. It's, it's a doctrine that begins in Genesis. God comes and he chooses Abraham. God chooses Jacob. God chooses Joseph. God chose you if you're a believer. He is sovereign in his choice of those whom he will save. Don't run from the word or the doctrine election. Don't let it scare you. Dig into it. Research it. Read about it. Read books on it. Don't be afraid of it. You don't have to to, uh, run from that doctrine. I remember I was probably about 20 before I'd even heard the word predestination, before I'd even heard of election. I just had not... That's just something that I had never heard about. What does this mean? What is this idea? Maybe that's new to you. It's weird to you. And you're coming here and you're hearing about that here and there. And you're thinking, this is strange. Is this even Christian? What is this idea? Research it. God is a God who chooses. And we see that here. These dreams are from God. God has chosen Joseph from among his brothers to be the means of salvation from famine. Not the others. The dreams show God did this, and it's Joseph. We will see this bowing down later in the story. So sovereign choice. The second thing I want you to see is sovereignty over sin. This this is beautiful. God is sovereign over your sinful choices. What that tells us, what we see here, is that the hatred of the brothers falls under the sovereign purposes of God. Listen to this. Their hatred will lead to Joseph being sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. Was it God's will that his brothers hate Joseph? In one sense, no. It's never God's will for a person to hate another. But in another sense, yes. It was God's will to bring Joseph to Egypt. And the means by which, the sovereign means by which that happened was through this family dispute and this hatred of these brothers who out of their hatred would sell him into slavery. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's because it is something that far surpasses our wisdom. It far surpasses our own ability to put it together. How God can be totally sovereign and we can be entirely responsible. Were those sons responsible for their hatred? Absolutely. Yet God was sovereign over it. Just like the cross, right? Was it God's will 
that Christ be crucified? Absolutely. Are the religious leaders and Pilate and the Jews who cried out against Christ, are they responsible for putting Christ on that cross? Absolutely. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are not at odds. They are just mysterious when placed together. So how? How do we respond to the grace of God in other people's lives? That's what the question I want to close on this morning. What we see here is the grace of God in Joseph's life. And the brothers don't say, oh, praise God, Joseph. Praise God, Joseph. He's, he's going to do a great thing through you. God is speaking to you. That's not what we see here. We see the grace of God coming to Joseph and we see the envy and jealousy and hatred of those who see the grace of God at work in another. So the question is, how do you respond to the grace of God in other people's lives? When God blesses other people, when God puts other people in leadership besides you, when God does things in the lives of people that he's not doing in your life, when your neighbor's child they've been praying for for a long time comes to Christ and your child whom you've been praying for for a long time does not come to Christ, what do you do with that? What do we do the grace of God in the lives of our neighbor. In the flesh, we know envy. But in the spirit, by the power of Christ in us, praise to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us your truth from your word. Your word is truth, Father. We praise you that we don't have to go and read a hundred books on every topic. We don't have to consult every expert in every field of psychology and sociology and history and so forth, Lord. We benefit much from those things, but we know that you have told us what your will is for our lives. You have told us why we were made and how we were made. You have told us what the end will be for those who know you and those who do not. And you have poured out upon us wisdom for every area of life through the sacred scriptures. Your all-sufficient word. And so, Lord, we pray that your word will do its work this morning by the power of your spirit as you do surgical work in each of our hearts, conforming us to Christ magnifying the glory of your name in the earth through our individual vocations and relationships and through our trials. We pray that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.